Hello there. Welcome to Rome FM. Here we dive into the minds, workflows, and machinations of the Rome cult, the believers of Rome research. My name is Norman Cella, and I am on a mission to deconstruct wisdom from all walks of life so we can understand each other better. In this episode, we talk with Matt McGann, who is the founder of Health Horizon, a health startup focusing on tracking upcoming health technologies in real time for all sorts of use cases for companies, entities, and innovators as well. He is also the creator of Rome for Teamwork, an online course covering multiplayer knowledge bases where everything is connected and nothing is duplicated. How to set up Rome as a place where teamwork naturally builds a coherent repository of the organization's knowledge. So if you are interested in setting up a multiplayer Rome for your team, this is a great resource for you. You can find us at roamforteamwork.com. Starting off with a PhD in theoretical physics at the Australian National University and getting the itch for entrepreneurship, Matt is now working on Health Horizon, managing a team of four on a shared Rome graph. So this episode will be all about processes, methods, product management, and more, all on some amazing detailed processes surrounding queries. So we are going to get quite technical in this episode. We talked about the dark times, how Matt stepped away from academia to focus on something that has much more impact. What captures his attention in the world of science, focusing on popular scientific breakthroughs as opposed to academic papers, the mission behind Health Horizon and what is it trying to achieve, and Matt's workflow, both personal and shared. A very detailed look at his multiplayer roam, managing to-dos, checklists, sales opportunities, CRMs, pipelines, and much more, and how he used Rome to replace every other app designed for each of these aspects, as well as finding out why he calls a team roam the inverse of his personal roam, which is a sentence I would love to say again because it's so interesting. The inverse. From science communication to artificial general intelligence and optical character recognition, we are going to go through quite a number of things in this episode. So without further ado, let's dive into my chat with Matt McGann of Health Horizon and Rome for Teamwork. Yeah, I, I ran a podcast many moons ago and mm. um, I really loved it. Yeah, lots, lots of fun. Oh, you didn't continue uh, it? No, this is actually really long ago. So this is 2009. Oh, wow. Yeah, like 11 years ago. Yeah, we did it at the university and when I was at uni. And um, it's really good. We actually started getting paid for it. The uni started um, oh, wow. noticed that we were making the podcast. The podcasts were very new then. And uh, they wanted to get into new areas. So they paid us for a whole bunch of episodes. And then the, the uni just didn't get it like the, the people in charge didn't understand the benefit um you wouldn't believe it one thing they said to us was that um they didn't like podcasts because it only reached a local audience okay and, I said, and we said <laughs> but they like these are more global than than radio like it's not even national it's international yeah and they just didn't they just didn't get it um maybe they're also annoyed that they spent ten thousand dollars and got five episodes but it was the early days you, you, like no one knew how much they should cost it was all kind of wild west <laughs> oh wow 10k for five episodes oh that's yeah, that's, yeah, that's insane we, money that's amazing <laughs> we we didn't know what to charge so we just said that and then they were like oh yeah okay go ahead <laughs> and then they they didn't buy anymore so What's, what was the show actually about was it about 
like what you were working on or was it in general like oh a podcast in the uni and it could be about anything and everything yeah i was interviewing academics but we, oh, we had okay. done for about a year a podcast just on our own and we were we used it as an excuse to interview the most interesting people at the uni because well, i was at anu which is the best uni in australia and there are a lot of super researchers there there's like dark matter nobel prize winners and um a guy doing nuclear non-proliferation, you know, like just heaps of interesting stuff. And we wanted to talk to them. So we just set up an interview. We, we would interview, we'd interview three and then on a topic and then combine three interviews to oh, cover a topic. Okay. It was a lot of editing. Uh, it wasn't sort of an interview based thing. It was all edited together with voiceover. It was like a radio lab. We were inspired by a radio lab and, um, that's part of the reason it was so expensive. Each episode took like ages, 20 hours or something. Oh my 80, goodness. Like, yeah. But uh, again, no one knew what they were doing back then. And uh, I need to find this. I'm really interested in, in, in listening to this because I, I actually thought about this exact idea and mm-hmm. there was already feedback from a couple of people who are like, I want to listen to it right now. Uh, rather than actually it, it's a different angle in, in that mm-hmm. rather than each episode is, surrounding one topic where maybe you try to explain it or you explain their perspective. It's more like you look at someone's, um, what's the word for it? Recently published work and they try to defend slash explain it on the interview. So okay. if, if someone has done like a recent article and is, you know, gaining a bit of popularity in, in the academic world, uh, the interviewer is the person who goes on the air to ask them to explain even more after they've read the article, of course, because I mean, how, how can you, how can you interview someone without knowing what their, their works mm. and try to make it a little bit more accessible for non-academics to understand its impact, to understand the importance of that experiment or to understand that thesis. So it's, I like that that could focus on a particular argument. Even it, it has yeah. the opportunity to go quite deep into one part. You don't have to, you know, so many interviews because you get one person once for one hour. You got to cover everything, and you don't get deep. That that's like an opportunity to force yourself into one uh, one small argument. Yeah, sounds interesting. Yeah, yeah, you can like go into a huge rabbit hole just from that one thing. So, lo- lots of opportunities there, uh, of course, uh, in the medium of podcasting, where you can really pretty much experiment with any idea i actually didn't know that you had a podcast so i'm, I'm gonna find it i i will i will try to my best to find it well Maybe I, if, you know, one of the biggest annoying regrets ever is we lost half of our episodes oh. to time yeah because we were using this online service and then we were posting them locally and then we let the, the server like the hosting lapse and hmm. so on on my uh, creative on the website where me and my um the guy I did it with, we put all our creative stuff on it. Um, there are some episodes there. It, okay. Because it's no longer on iTunes or anything like that. It's it's just audio files on our website, like a historical artifact kind of thing. Oh, I love this. Okay, okay. Right. I'm going to post that in the public graph, of course, for those who want to listen to, I, I call it narratives because you really do have to, ah, uh, Yes. Yeah, don't worry. I have your website like open uh, right oh, now. Right. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So the um, the one called we're well, actually I'm I'm trying to re- rejig my online presence. Actually, give myself a bit of a brand and try to accumulate followers. I'm yeah. starting to do that, and so they, this website needs a good looking at. But um, the one called 
Lit- Litmus was the one that we did officially, the five yes. episodes. That's on the podcast. Soundproof was the one we did experimentally before that with the interviews, but I think we only have like two or three episodes. And then the Twain was one where we, there was an opportunity to, um, do you know the website, I fucking love science? I, I uh, yeah, yeah, I, I know about it. Yeah. Yeah. So there's another one called Science Alert. That guy who made Science Alert, I think Science Alert is the second most popular. He's in my home city of Canberra and he, he was interested in doing podcasts 10 years ago. And so we did a pitch. We pitched the Twain, which was another podcast series where, I mean, we just thought, look, we're a bit, um, we didn't want to just do another interview sort of thing. Yeah. So we thought we'll only pitch what we want to make. And we thought, could we do comedic sketches based on scientific papers, <laughs> <laughs> which is a ridiculous idea, but we tried. And so the Twain there, if you take a look at that, that's, I don't know, three episodes or something of um, just trying to make comedy on, um, on, on science. Yeah. So th- there's a bit of, there's a lot of fun there and I kind of miss doing the podcast stuff. Well, of course, I, I'll, I'll definitely check these out. Oh, just a quick, just a quick question. Since we're on this website, anyway, I, I've always wanted to ask this, and I was a bit confused, but maybe you'd have a great answer for this. Why is it called Unnamed? We didn't think too hard about it. We just WordPress <laughs> forced us to give it a blog name, and uh, we called it Unnamed because <laughs> we didn't, didn't think of a name. And then around that time, we were doing science communication kind of stuff, you know, like the Twain doing comedy. But then also those interviews were really communicating complex topics to people. Yeah. So uh, we we thought at the time that most science communication was lame, as in not cool. You know, like they would try too hard to be cool, or they would um, just be boring or or too normal. And so we didn't take it too seriously. So we just unnamed became unlamed. We thought oh, it was clever. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I like that. Oh, okay. The whole website is us just trying to be clever. So, (laughs) (laughs) no, I love it. There was like, if if there's an origin story to that name, I mean, honestly, even that can be a podcast name. Like, if unlamed, and then each episode Mm. is just talking about trying to deconstruct something really complex, Mm. uh, Mm. like uh, a scientific topic. I mean, I would totally listen to it because it was an idea that I was thinking of as well. I mean, like before, and and it came from the curiosity of trying to really understand whatever the hell this jargon was. Like it could range from dark matter or it can range from, you know, like mechanics or some form or some term I've read in theoretical physics or something along those lines. Yeah. Uh, but it felt really inaccessible as if I, I will just never touch that field mm-hmm. or that, that knowledge space at all. The limitations in trying to further myself or trying to further my own you know curiosity are barred because you know you have these like huge terms being thrown around only in this one context and it's not accessible for the rest of the world so that was like a really really big thing that um that i was really annoyed with uh so it's it's great to know that you're doing it as well like for years oh i love that (laughs) well it's pretty big in our city this whole science communication thing there's a Mm -hmm. there's an actual university department at anu dedicated to communicating science Yes, yeah, so, so I felt the same way. I, I did a physics degree, so mm-hmm. I ended up doing science because I was so interested in it. But funnily enough, I found that like, I found that the undergrad degree gave me a lot of information about lots of different types of physics. Then I did a master's, and that was a bit um, 
less interesting because it was a bit more constrained. And then I did a PhD and that was even more constrained. And then I realized that I wasn't interested in going that deep because <laughs> oh, you can go okay. very, very deep. And I, I realized that most of the value I got out of the science stuff was in the, the stuff that you might classify as popular science. So just like reveling in what's cool about the cosmos and, you know, trying to imagine the size of stars and, you know, all that kind of stuff. That was the fun bit. The actual doing of science too deep, like academic, I realized that was too far. So, so yeah, I think there's a, there's a, there's a place where you could go where you, you can go as deep as you want and um, you, you don't miss out by not going deep enough because it goes infinitely deep and you get diminishing returns quite quickly. Oh, yeah. Okay. I see. Especially when you know where you're most interested in. So there's no point going deeper. I feel like that's, that's pretty interesting because that, that sets, like you have a very firm or concrete border in which, okay, this is too much. This is not me anymore. Or mm-hmm. I don't find myself like pursuing anything beyond at PhD level, assuming that each, you know, each thesis is on one specific micro, super specific level of information that yeah. maybe not even 1% of the world will ever, ever know about. Maybe it's even less. I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Hmm. M- much, much, much less. The average number of people who read a PhD thesis, I think, is like one. <laughs> like, seriously, no one reads them because um, most of them are not that good. People are still learning. Do you still read them? Or no? Me? Yeah. Scientific papers, you mean? Scientific papers in general, but maybe do you just stop at scientific papers and then you just don't go beyond, say, some sub subfields that are just too specific that you don't care? I rarely read scientific papers. Okay. Yeah. Because usually you can read a news article about some science breakthrough and it's it's useful to have done physics to sort of know what they're talking about. And what what it really allows you to do is kind of understand those things without having to read the papers in a way you can, oh, you can okay. read about the, the, the experiment and you can go, Oh, this is what they were trying to do. Okay. I understand that. Um, so they must've found either A or B and then you find the found B and you're like, okay, good. That's, that's good. I'll move on. And you don't really have to go into details because papers are more, papers are more about accountability. It's about oh, okay. putting your work forward for criticism by scientific peers. And so you don't, necessarily um it's not about reading to be understood really or 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 about communicating it's a scientific process that other people don't really need to be involved in Hmm. Uh, now that you put it that way that's that sets a very interesting perspective in how a phd or someone who actually contributes to a scientific paper or like a scientific journal would actually want to do their experiment or would actually want to create their paper for the sake of accountability or maybe some form of credentialism because it would mean that, you know, are you doing this for the pursuit of that field or are you doing this for, to find a place for yourself in that scientific community? But that's a yeah, whole yeah. other rabbit hole to go through altogether. Oh, that, that, is a, that is a huge rabbit hole. It's like the problem with science right now um, that everyone knows is there. Yeah. Okay. You, 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 you've poked a hornet's nest. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that we can probably dive into that uh, another time because I'm sure that dilemma may be shared by other Rome users who are listening to this right now because, well, 15 minutes in, I haven't even talked about Rome, which is uh, someone's going to kill me for that. (laughs) So so since the last few years from 
creating a podcast surrounding like catering to interviewing academics and really deconstructing what they're working on and really pursuing your your curiosity the knowledge that you're trying to gain around most popular sciences which you don't really have to go so deep into and we are still in the dark times before you even discovered the tool rome how did you make the jump as a vigilant optimist from being in physics to being in health because I was trying my best to make like a guess or a prediction in my head, like as to how did you make a jump? I'm going to be honest. I could not come up with an answer, but uh, what's uh, what happened? Yeah. Well, it wasn't, there wasn't a um, continuous line be- mm. between the two. Cause yeah, you, I don't even think it's possible to imagine one, but <laughs> while I was doing my PhD, I realized it was, uh, I really wasn't cut out for academia uh, more because of the, the structures that you have to abide by writing papers. It's just a bit too boring for me. I, I wanted to keep doing the fun stuff. Around that time, the university was experimenting with innovation and entrepreneurship and trying to instill that in their students because they kept training STEM kids in maths and physics and science, and then there wasn't enough jobs for them. So they're like, okay, we need to give them entrepreneurial skills so they can make their own jobs, essentially, which is a pretty good strategy. They started doing this in 2008, or even 2007, my first year there. And uh, I started getting involved in that. So Mm. I became more interested in entrepreneurship gradually peeling away from academia and then the someone I met my co-founder I met during that competition and he was in health and he said I've got the basic idea for for a business do you want to come in with me and do it and I was like yeah and so that was a move out of academia which was automatically out of physics and then that was just a dive into entrepreneurship which owing to the, the the network I had at the time happened to be in health. So I don't have the health background, but it's, yeah. that's been quite interesting because I'm, I'm looking at the problem from a, a data and um, analysis point of, point of view. And he brings the health and that can provide some good perspectives. Right. Yeah. Okay. I'm bringing, bring a co-founder in from pretty much outside the box, but you brought your principles in, you've brought your methods and your processes into health. I was going to ask like, if you had any interest in health at all, but I guess it's more like the pursuit of being in that environment or in that context where you are working on something that will make an impact. Oh, I love that. I love that so much. <laughs> well, the, the, what I discovered by going into health was that it is the most complicated thing in the world, I would say. It's the most complicated industry because you know physics is hard because you, you're doing experiments on very tiny things and you're trying to understand what's happening. Biology and medicine is harder in many ways trying to do experiments with the human body and and do trials and all that kind of stuff is just so hard trying to get any knowledge out of that process. But then on that, you've got the health industry, you've got the government's involvement, you've got funding, you've got private industry, you've got all these things. Then all of a sudden, this is all being applied to humans. You've got risk, you've got insurance, all this gets tangled up and the industry is just such a complicated mess. And that's, quite interesting. I, I found that very challenging and made me glad that I went into it. And fantastic. Oh, I, I, this is, this is super fascinating to me because it, it, the complexity of the industry can really scare off a lot of people, especially when not only do you have to learn about 
the technicalities behind it, as in what what needs to work, what needs to uh, what can't be done, or like trials, etc. But also the the actors in it, the players, I, and I call them you know, entities from from governments to insurance and all that. It's a very hard road to navigate, and I've seen a few other startups in health tech or med tech, and they would do their best, but then they're barred by mm. by certain, shall we say, regulations or laws that prevent them from trying out a new experiment or actually going in a direction that could be beneficial, but they can't because maybe ethics or something that's called health horizon. So what is it actually about? And mm. what are you working on, really? Because it says tracking health innovation technologies, but... Yeah, yeah. Well, we started as a uh, consumer service. The idea was that you, we all watch the news and every now and then, usually toward the end of the show, they would show a some medical breakthrough. They'll say, scientists at the Australian National University have discovered that this chemical has good results in Parkinson's patients. Then they always have this line like, scientists say this could be a cure in 10 years' time. And then, yeah, see you later. <laughs> the show ends. <laughs> and then you're just sitting there going, oh, okay, that'd be cool. But also for 10 years, they've been promising these cures, right? Yeah. So I had the very simple question uh, of why, why don't we know where all these are up to? You know, why can all these groups just make all these claims all the time? And there doesn't seem to be any accountability. So we, we figured that the progress of any health technology if it's to be known at all, it's on the internet somewhere. So it should be feasible to pull in every claim that's made about a health technology, every news feature, patent application, uh, scientific paper, trial registry, bring it all together and then join the dots to work out the historical progress of any health technology in the world and then use that algorithm to track it into the future. So then the hope is as an individual, you see a promise like that on the news, you go to Health Horizon, you type in Parkinson's, you just see every technology under development for Parkinson's disease, and then you click follow, 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 as if they're social media accounts. And then you're following those technologies, and when they enter trials, pass trials, or become available, you get notified. So a, a new oh, way I've okay. thought of describing this is, what if, what if health innovations were as easy to follow as celebrities were. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so that's kind of what we're... I was about to say, like, it's like Twitter for for innovation or like Twitter for medical innovations or medical breakthroughs. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah, and then we avoid uh, people having to report their own progress by just having a big machine that generates the updates, essentially, so so that we don't we don't need the owner of that innovation to be reporting their progress because through their interaction with the internet, we kind of pick up their activities and we can form that into something that even consumers can understand. And so as a, as a business, we provide services to um, other businesses who need to track health technologies for, for many different reasons. Can an individual access it, actually? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Oh, sure. okay. So you can log in with a free account and follow a bunch of innovations. Yeah. Oh, Okay. Wow. I, okay. That's, I didn't, I didn't think that's actually, oh, okay. Interesting. You know, uh, if I'm honest, we don't do a very good job of explaining it on the landing page. And it's something I've been thinking about very recently, trying to refresh that because it's, it, yeah, it's a bit tricky. We're, we're providing a service for consumers and professionals and um, yeah, we could do better with that. But is there a, 
I take it the ratio of people who would be interested in following medical breakthroughs would lean more towards B2B or like larger companies and public entities more than individuals, right? Yeah, it's actually pretty pretty equal based on oh, the, okay. the I mean the the kind of outreach we're doing, we we don't have a a pure sample space of who would be interested oh. in the whole world, but hmm. we we t- we tend to get an equal number roughly of innovators, investors and the public. Um, oh. yeah, following these things. Okay. Yeah. Wow. I'm sure there's going to be quite a number of uh, Romans who are listening, especially if I'm not sure if you're already part of a uh, Rome medical in the Rome Slack, but tons of people ah. are interested in finding ways to do multiplayer Rome and, you know, keeping track of maybe not specifically medical breakthroughs, but in the case of, aggregating all the knowledge around the field of medicine to uh, make sure that it's constant, that it is accessible by all users. But if they have a way to track like incoming technology or incoming innovations that may affect their field, I think that'll be pretty, pretty fascinating to see how that would marry together. So how I think did that's you- where we would fit. Yeah. Cause we, we don't, we don't record medical data or patient data or, um, or monitor interventions or improve care or anything like that. It's really at that higher level of tracking where technologies are going. So mm. medical isn't quite the right area, but oh, certainly okay. health innovation. And, and But those people inside medicine can follow technologies that might matter to them. It'd be very good use of that. We, we use Rome in multiplayer mode uh, to, yeah. to basically run the entire company. And I've been slowly getting off all these online services building these services inside of Rome. And uh, it's, it's, it's been a lot of fun. I'm very proud of what we, what we made. <laughs> so how did you discover the tool? Because I'm assuming that you've had all these, you, you said you've had all these online apps that you've been using to like hack all these things together. And uh, when was that amazing moment where you saw the Astrolab? I would love to, be, love to hear uh, how did you discover it? Uh, last Christmas, I was trying to find a new note-taking tool because I've been looking for note-taking tools really my whole life, gradually finding better and better things as the world went digital. I was still using a notebook up until last year, really, and now I, I kind of stopped using a notebook now. Uh, but it was it was Christmas because the Australian fires were happening and we were locked in my oh, family's. Yeah. Uh, we were there for Christmas and then we were sort of locked down there. And so I signed up to about five new note-taking apps at once. And it was actually really confusing because uh, some guy uh, DM'd me on Twitter and said, oh, I saw you looking for apps. Do you want to try my app? And he gave me a link. And I was like, yeah, sure. And I clicked his link. I must have got distracted. And then I came back to it. And I opened up my browser on my phone and it was the Rome sign-up page. But it wasn't anyone from Rome who sent me that message. So somehow the link got messed up. I, I, the link closed or I just opened a different browser window or whatever. So I log into Rome and I'm using it. And I think it, the guy who messaged me owns it. So I'm using Rome and, I'm, and I messaged the guy and I said, oh, this is really interesting. Yeah, the sidebar is cool. And, and this whole thing's built on a graph, is it? And this guy is like, no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> okay, that doesn't sound like my app. So that was, that was my first experience. It was a bit confused because Whoa, okay. I, thought the, I thought the guy who suggested it to me was, was hijacked by, by, by some Rome employee. That <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, but yeah, I started developing it, and um, I was very interested about the fact it was built on a graph because we built much of Health Horizon on on a graph, and the way we structure our data. I had been thinking about how to represent knowledge in a graph form for like the last six months. And so then there's this note-taking app that's in a graph. I was like, oh, okay, this is, this is exciting. Let's um, see what, what can happen. So that's what grabbed me about it mm. was the, the graph nature of it. I was skeptical of the UI at first. I thought the UI was, was oh. awful. But now I think it's actually <laughs> very good because I've come to get used to it. So the potential I saw was in the graph underneath and and by its graph nature, do you mean its its ability to connect all these nodes as if it's the graph, or do you mean like the graph overview visual? I mean connecting nodes as if they're a graph. The, oh, okay, the visual, okay. right. um, I think, could be useful. And and but but the one thing I learned looking at graphs was yeah. that the visualization of graphs is not all that useful just generally. Like you can get cool visualizations out to get a, a feel, but you never really get data out of a. Yeah, visualization yeah. of a graph. But yeah, the, the idea to freely link any concept was extremely exciting. And the what helped me was I was always getting stuck in overly structured table-based or um, directory-based note-taking apps. Every time I'd use one, you'd make new folders and I would just end up getting stuck and, and jarred and hemmed in by the structure. And I realized that, yeah, being able to freely link things in graph just totally removed that problem, replaced it with a different problem, which is structuring it after the fact. But that seemed to be the right way to go. I think that's 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 the real innovation here that that I like most about it. Yeah, I'm sure. After tinkering for a few days and then figuring out that, oh, right, you can consider structure after writing everything down, which is quite uh, innovative in its own way. So if this was all on your personal Roam, my assumption is that you have a personal Roam and then you have your multiplayer Roam. How did you implement Roam into Health Horizon? Because I made so many accounts back in the day. I've got all these kind of accounts lying around. Oh, so okay, one account okay. has, has the graph in it. The sort of official Health Horizon account has a graph. And uh, I go in there with my private account and then other people go in there with theirs. What what I realized as, as we were iterating the process, getting the team on was quite a challenge because yeah. it's it's you know onboarding is a big challenge as everyone knows <laughs> but i really stuck with it because I, I believed that we could make it work they get it now which is good <laughs> and it ended up being which surprised me it ended up being kind of the inverse of my personal graph so in my personal graph it's mostly used for i think of things or i see things on the move and i just want to throw it in there in a way that can be easily structured later that's kind of what personal graph became so daily notes is how you'd use that you throw everything in daily notes and then you might review it later and, and give it some structure yeah i quickly found out that the team room if we did that it'd be too much of a mess i found it was much more useful if everyone because everyone when they're working they're kind of at the computer they're not doing this kind of just throw ideas in randomly so they mm-hmm. then go to the pages that they need to go to to add the information in a structured way. And then the daily notes then is the output. So people go to daily notes and they can see here are all the tasks happening today. This day is important because these events have happened. Uh, These tests were done today. These sales calls were done today. And so the daily notes using queries and things like that pulls the knowledge graph out 
and allows you to consume the knowledge graph relevant to today rather than the notes page being a place where you record stuff. That's the current stage. It keeps evolving, but that's kind of how it looks now. Wow. Okay. So if, if someone, if one of your members accesses the roam, do they go straight to a specific page or do they immediately go to daily notes page to know what they have to do or to have an overview of the day? My, we, yeah, we have yeah. a, we have an, what I call an attention page for each person. Okay. So there's a Matt attention page. There's a Coco attention page. And that page has uh, four different types of queries. There's, there's a query that is, these are the to-dos that have been assigned to you officially. These are your notifications, things that you should look at. These are your uh, tests that are waiting on you to do. And uh, I should just open it. Um, I could show it to you, right? We could screen share. Would that help? Um, yeah, go for it. Probably not great for the podcast, but... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe later on, uh, once this uh, video version, or once I do something with the video, uh, I'll, I'll put it up and see. see uh, and we can see it. We can follow along as uh, you're screen sharing. But yeah, yeah. Uh, I, let's uh, try to audibly describe uh, what's on the screen for now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So on the on the... Shortcuts on the left, this might be a good way to do it, the way, the way it's structured. Sure. We have kind of a rough table of contents to our knowledge base. So that's all the documentation, that's all the um, sales we've made, all the deliveries we're doing, the product development, the sprints, all that kind of stuff. Then we've got some uh, summary pages, which pull things out based on tags. So priorities, milestones, deliverables, active sales, active deliveries. These are all things that are tagged on a page and that get pulled out as a summary. So you can just look at that and see, okay, what are all the current active sales? What are all the current deliveries that are happening? Okay. Then we've got all our sprints, the technical development, uh, the current sprint we put in the shortcut list as well. And then we've got this attention page for every employee. So Matt's attention, Coco's attention, and that is broken down into the to-dos, the tests that are waiting for you, uh, and then sort of role-specific stuff. But the big thing we had to solve, and it's still not really done very well, is notifications because it's possible for mm. someone to go in and make a change and no one know about it. And it's, we would find ourselves sort of making a change in Rome, then going into Slack and saying, hey, I made this change on this page. And that, that kind of defeats the purpose in, in many ways. You may as well just use Slack to inform somebody. Because what I wanted to do with Rome was that every – I wanted to just eliminate that problem – whenever in, in a business or whatever, when you think we've done this before, what did we do? You know, that knowledge was lost. That's what I'm trying to eliminate. Can all knowledge that you collect as you run a business be stored in Rome for later? So if you keep using Slack to tell people things, that knowledge gets lost because it goes yeah. into your back feed. But if you can put the knowledge into Rome and then point the user to the information in Rome, you know it's there for good. And so we've, we've just made a page so square bracket, square bracket, at symbol, Matthew, and uh, a little speech bubble emoji, that tag is used as a notification. So if you want anyone to read a block and whatever's underneath it, you pop that name with their name in it, at Coco, at Matthew, speech bubble. Then on their attention page, when they log in, they see all the things that other people have brought to their attention. So it, it sort okay. of simulates notifications it's still a bit manual yeah but uh, it's working 
pretty well now. I, I, I know that, Rome, I'm pretty sure I got some support feedback that they're going to build this officially, <laughs> some notification stuff, but this works well for now. It sounds like they're going to build that officially because I was thinking either with API or even right before it that mm-hmm. people want to be notified of their changes outside of that context, yeah. uh, especially when, especially like in your case, especially when there's a shared room. That's the mm-hmm. biggest one. If someone has edited a block that other people have worked on it. I mean, there has to be a way to notify other people that, oh, there has been a change. Can you make sure that this is okay, et cetera. I, I like that you did, it, you did it manually and it sounds like it works really well. Yeah, it, it kind of does. I mean, we, we just have the, the common management problem of people remembering to look at it every day and all that kind of stuff. But even, even if notifications were built, I'm not really sure how it would work because you don't necessarily need to know every block that was changed. That that seems to me to be too much. And so there is a manual step, which I don't know how you'll get around, which is, you know, I I rewrote the structure of this page because now we have better information. I want to bring your attention to it, but you don't need to know every change I've made. You just need to know that this change has occurred. So that that there to to summarize that for somebody else is a manual step. So you may as well do a tag like this and bring their attention to it. Um, But it'd be exciting to see where it goes. Could you split the types of notifications further? Because that sounds like you just need to know that this happened and you don't have to take action on it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we have, mm. to get into even more detail, so there are these notifications, which are the at name speech bubble. And then what they do is they just delete the speech bubble and that's it read. And that that means that the query that's on that speech bubble tag, it no longer gets picked up. So when they go to the attention page, there's a query of at Matthew speech bubble. I read those. I just go in and I delete the speech bubble. They disappear from that query. So they're essentially red, and that's how you kind of work through your notifications. So they're just somebody saying, Matt, please look at this and maybe answer this question. That's what that's used for. But actual to-dos, if you want someone to do something for you, that is a checkbox, like a to-do tag, then describe it, and then their name, their full name. Then there's a query on their attention page that picks up to do and that person's full name. And that is just the current to-do list for that person. So that's why there is a separate list of notifications and then a separate list of to-dos for that person. Ah, okay. Right. Uh, We we found that we had to split those up. And often your to-do might also have a notification tag on it, which is fine. It, It just means you really can't miss this. You need to see it right now. Okay. But I'm, I'm starting, more generally, I'm starting to see Rome more like a tool like Excel because you can, people use Excel and they, if they use an Excel system to manage their, their, their sprints or their documentation or, or whatever, you, you can use Excel to do anything basically because it's like a Turing machine or whatever. You, you can just put in equations that can do whatever. So you can build anything in Excel and I think you can build anything in Rome in that sense. And so that's what we're, trying to do with, with queries, trying to simulate these different systems. So this, this is kind of the communication management system where you've got the to-dos, but then we also have the sprints and the technical development with testing and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then we have the sales CRM part. And the real thing that benefits me is that all these three things are hooked up. When I'm tagging someone about an idea I had, I can tag them to our documentation. I can tag them to the user support 
that's relevant to that. I can tag them to the sprint that that was written in, and then I can tag them to the customers that are going to use it or that asked for it. And all of this is in the same system, which is where I'm trying to get to is, is your, your sales opportunities aren't stuck in pipe drive. Your future roadmap isn't stuck in product board. Your development isn't in Trello and you're trying to sort of use Slack as this intermediary between all these. It's everything's just in Rome and nothing gets forgotten. That's kind of what I'm going for. Basically, you've canceled all of these other apps, right? Like now that you built all this up. Yeah, yeah. We've saved some money um, doing that, actually. Sounds like a lot of money. <laughs> well, Rome's kind of expensive, so it's, maybe it's a good <laughs> I'm really curious about, maybe this is kind of a repeat, because uh, I'm really curious about how you plan your sprints via Rome. Normally, there's a process to go from step one to step the last step and planning out every other aspect that will happen throughout that week or throughout the length of time that you have your sprint. If you could walk me through the moment when you're with your team and you plan your sprint, how does that work? Is it, Does it start with a review of every single page or attention page and then you review, mm-hmm. you cut unnecessary tasks, etc.? What happens? We, we still have quite a small team. So this should all be taken with that caveat because... Uh, like I don't, I don't have a, like twenty-five man team pulling all this stuff together. There's um, two developers and then two others, so a whole team is that use Rome at least uh, four people. So the, what we've come up with is is good for that size so far. <clears throat> Each sprint has its own page, and it contains the usual sprint information you might want to know about the, the the goals, who's responsible, what aspects of the priorities does it focus on, all that kind of stuff. Then there are the tests that are getting done. And then each feature, we used to use use cases, but I found that didn't work very well with with Rome. Um, So each feature is then listed in its own Kanban board. Each feature is a block. And so that block can be linked with the block reference to the test. So you've got a test, which is in a block. Then you've got a feature, which is in a block. And then you do a, a block reference to nest the feature under the test. And that now means what you get is when I do this test, I'm testing multiple features. Ah, okay. And when I look at a feature, I can see all the tests that test it. So you get this many-to-many relationship between features and tests that we found we just couldn't get in Trello and it kept annoying the shit out of us. <laughs> it had like, you do this test here and that tests this feature but it also had implications for this feature and you'd have to keep all that in your head, which tests touch which feature because each was a separate card. And so this lets you assign essentially any number of features to tests, any number of tests. That that worked for a while, but when tests failed and then we had to have a kind of fix or a change then introduced. That had to become a new block. So we create a new section called fixes. Each block there is a modification or a tweak or a bug fix that was brought out by that test. And so now that is attached to the test as well. So every test has nested under it the features that it's developed and then the fixes that got raised. And then each of those blocks have their own tags to say the status of them. So when I look at a test right now, I can see this test's two different features. One of those features is still building because it has the building tag on it. One of the t- features is built because it has the completed tag on it. The test also triggered three fixes. One of those is, has been fixed and two of them are waiting to be fixed. So at a glance, I can see if this is ready to test again. 
all this is then pushed through to my attention page, when I look at that, I can see which tests have all their features done and all their fixes done. And then that gets pushed through to me to say, this is now ready to test. I hope that makes sense with through audio. <laughs> <laughs> if, if it's possible, I'm not sure to what extent, if you have any like sensitive information, if you could do like a screenshot of like an older Tesla feature, if that's allowed. If not, that's okay. Yeah. I could probably spend some time and put together a sort of fake sprint. And I think that that would help a lot. Yeah. Like yeah. even just a screenshot, just to give an idea, like a visual element to understanding how how features get nested under tests and how tests get processed. And from there, how does that get pushed onto an attention page? Because, I mean, you can switch the labels around and I feel like this can, like this system can really fit many other use cases as well. Yeah, 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 totally. Uh, the other thing to mention that really saved me many, many hours was that everything you do because of the nature of Rome, if you do anything more than once, it should become its own page, yeah. right? So, and then, then you just link to that one source of truth. So tests that I would find myself writing into Trello for people to do, if I write, if I describe how tests should be done, I can now make that a page and that becomes a standard test. And now anytime oh. I spin up a new sprint, I can just literally type like, okay, what tests do I need to do? I start writing because one of the functions of Health Arising is following a technology, right? So if it's got something to do with following, I can start typing follow. And then in my drop-down list, it says, okay, here are the follow features. Here are the follow tests. Here are the follow documentation. And I can go, okay, right, here are the follow tests. I just look at them and I go, all right, we want to do follow test one, two, three, and four. And then that's it. I don't need to write the tests again. That Whoever's coming in to test just sees the link to the original description of that test. So you're building up a portfolio of tests that you just link to when you need them over time, saving more and more time as we go on. And and, and in this case, the test could be referred to like a technical document, like a very specific checklist on like, okay, on doing this or on assigning this test to this context, do the following. And you save a lot of hours because you don't have to rewrite everything. You don't have to copy paste it all over again. Oh, okay. Okay. Do, do you have to make any minor modifications or or because yeah, of the, the nature of the oh, okay all right all okay. the time and this is really why rome is valuable because we could try to build this in is it airtable that that sort of um yeah you could try and build something like this in in airtable and in in notion and all those kind of tools but what I found using those is because they get you to put the structure in first you always you always have to do things within that structure and, and creative work between people can't remain in a structure. And so, you know, if I link to a test and this one test just happens to need a new attribute or, or something, a meta comment, or I just want to link to a picture that no other test has, you can just oh. do it in Rome, right? You just add another block and you just throw it in. And for that little bit of mess, you avoid having to restructure all your other ones or, or build a new structure around tests. So these exceptions are so common that, you shouldn't try too hard, in my experience, to keep to a structure because that tends to be what reduces motivation and introduces complexity. Just leave things a bit messy and, and move on and you can just push through. I'm seeing that a lot with um, other members who, who've jumped shipped to Rome because mm -hmm. of the constraints 
due to having a structure first nature whenever they're trying to put input any note, not from the user side, but rather the demands of the app itself to force you to think, how will this be visualized or how will this be organized first before even considering what is it? The versatility yeah, of Roam yeah. in that way makes it just so much better, like so much easier for you to test systems like this. Like, oh, I, I never would have been able to do something yeah. like this, mainly yeah. because my lack of knowledge and understanding queries is still a bit limited. So I still want to try out or experiment on what is possible uh, in terms of integrating, say, task lists or project management uh, into Rome. But your attention page thing is actually, it's got me thinking a lot. That's, that's mm. pretty we, good. We also use attributes. So all the um, features and fixes, they all have their own attributes. And that's attributes are good when you want to enforce some structure. But I, oh, I find okay. that the biggest use is if you ever need a summary. If you want a summary of something that's spread across across multiple pages, that's where I use attributes. So for example, we record the, the customer, the details, and the value of each thing we sell in Rome underneath the customer. So you've got a customer and then it's like, we sent them this invoice and this is the information in it. Those are saved, the, the money, the, the dollar value, the... Um, the tax, the, the description, they're all saved as attributes. And then I have an invoice page, which is an attribute table. And so I can look at the invoice page and see every every invoice in a table. Oh, okay. The source data of those are in the customer pages. And so that's where, where, where I found attributes to be most valuable. If you want to pull, summarize together into a table, standard data across multiple different pages. Another really good example of this for, for product development is we've got multiple different user types on Health Horizon. You've got free consumers, you've got professionals, you've got internal users of different tiers, and yeah. each of them have different limits. And this was a nightmare to keep track of, you know, how many things can this group follow, what visibility rules apply to what people. We used to keep a table of that information, but it could never be kept up to date whenever we'd write different documents. So now what we have is a page dedicated to each user type and each user type has an attribute, which might be, this is the number of searches they can perform. This is the number of innovations they can follow. Because they're attributes, I also have a general user types page that pulls in those attributes. And so if you look at an individual user page, user type, you can see all their limits. Or if you look at the general user type page, you can see a summary table of every user type and all their limits. And that's really the power of attribute tables because now when I go in and I go to the internal user page and I change the number of searches, that's now updated in that table too because there's a single source of truth about what that user limit is. So this is where I've really found attributes to be useful too. And and just to clarify, maybe if you already answered this, uh, when you want to introduce someone new or in, you are adding a new customer to your general CRM and you're starting to add these attributes in, it's directly on their page, right? So would your workflow be, let's just say a guy named Bob started, signed up for Health Horizon and he's a premium user or he's a, you know, from a B2B company or something like that. Is it immediately, oh, because your daily notes page is only output. So is it that? Mm, that's right. Yeah. So you immediately create a page, Bob, immediately put the attributes in and then just leave it be because it's already connected to everything else. Yep. Yep. I would, I would write if I had a new person I was talking to. Yeah. Actually, so this is changing. And okay. this is another advantage of, of Rome because I could just change the structure whenever I want. If I meet someone new, they'll go down as a block inside of a sales opportunities page. 
Ah, okay. So they're just right. the block to start with. Like that's them, a little gamete or whatever, a zygote. <laughs> like that's the starting point. They're just one little block. And then if that relationship has more opportunity or becomes more serious, or want to take things up a notch, then I give them their own page. And then once they become their own page, I just mention, I say, um, let's say the, the per- it's an individual, Joe Blogs. The first line I'll just write is A bracket bracket. I forget what I use actually. Active sale, close bracket. That's it. Then I leave it. But because I know once I've used that active sales tag, I know I'll find it later when I look at my sales list. So now I know that page is there. And then any information, anything I've done, I just keep as a list. And so using Joe Blogs' page, there is now a block called, I think, sale or progress. And indented in that block is a whole list of to-dos. And that's literally Ah, the timeline of everything I've done and everything I need to do. So, you know, email him about this. Tick. Then every time I do a task, I put a task into the future as well. Follow up three days later, you know, follow up three days later if, if you've heard nothing. So that whole block can be collapsed into nothing. But if you expand it, it's basically a historical timeline of your interactions with them. And then if we make the sale, I do a new block, which is delivery. And it's exactly the same. It's a big, long timeline, which is we need to deliver this to them. We need to do this here. We need to do this here. And anytime I refer to a task, I can link to the documentation or I can um, notify other team members when they need to come in and help me for each of these things. Uh, And so don't be afraid to let one of those to-do lists become its own monster because you can just indent. So this task might be send them an invoice. And then I'm like, okay, what does this involve? So then... In that to-do, I assign a task to say, can you uh, scope out this, what's involved? And then I put a feature in there as well. And everything that needs to be done in that to-do, and once all those are done, it gets wrapped up and then that to-do is done. Now, each to-do also has a date on it. And that's why when you go to the daily notes page, it's automatically pulling in through the link mentions every sales to-do every day. And that, that's really why it's super useful. And if I need to delay something, I just change the date. <laughs> and then it, it disappears and it'll come back on that next day, that to-do. Wow, this is, wow. This I feel like this is months of testing before you came to this system. This is it, yeah, this it was super it took, fascinating. <laughs> it has, it's been pretty disruptive to come up with the, the system, but um, I'm certainly not going back, that's for sure. <laughs> When you want to formalize the relationship with the individual mm-hmm. from block to page level, which mm-hmm. sounds like to me like a deepening of friendship for some reason. Uh, yeah, but, yeah. Um, is there an immediate checklist that you just copy paste to get right into time to do all the sales, like time to initiate all the sales processes? Or is mm-hmm. it more of depending on what happened in the initial call or the initial interaction, these are the following checklists and then immediately do it manually? For sales, I I don't have a a template. Okay. I'm not sure why. I feel like sales are just so case by case that it hasn't really been useful to have a standard structure to them. But I do have templates for sprints, templates for tests, templates for features, templates for fixes. So we, we use templates extensively. Yeah. Because especially when you have multiple people, it's very hard to keep track of every attribute that is needed for every type of object, object for every type of block. And so 
we used to keep that as a template. We still do. There's a sort of a template page, which just lists every template we use. But then there's a page that explains how to move all those templates into something like text text expander. We use one yeah. called Linterlist, which uh, is a bit buggy, but uh, <laughs> it works okay. And so, yeah, people are using templates all the time. Okay. Well, this is probably the most integrated startup system I've ever heard being applied in Rome. Because previously, when I would try to visualize how do people organize information or how do they do their SOPs for most things, it's normally nested under a group of apps that cater to uh, specific things like CRM or even marketing or even sales and all that. And hearing it in Rome from how you're explaining it, it sounds so exciting and it also sounds a little bit overwhelming at the same time because mm-hmm. the technical knowledge needed to implement it in Rome requires a little bit more than just, oh, now that Rome is not a note-taking app anymore. It's not just a note-taking app anymore. Yeah, right. It's not yeah. possible with all these things. It is, it is a bit crazy to do this because yeah. it isn't built for this. But th- that's why that metaphor with Excel works yeah, yeah. i think because you can make it do anything and um if if rome decide to break some of these features or or they, they could decide to stop something because they want to focus on just being really good for note taking and something might break here and our whole system <laughs> will go down so that's obviously not very good maybe it's a bit reckless on my half but um <laughs> yeah things are things are working really well and you don't actually need that many Nothing here is too complicated. The most complicated thing here is an attribute table yeah. uh, and um, and templates, I would say, and a couple of semi-complicated queries. <laughs> no, queries uh, for a number of users are already hard to, maybe not even implement, but hard to understand because mm-hmm. sometimes it caters for, you know, what, what do you put in between? What are the, uh, what's the list of logics that you can put uh, in a query to make it work to your own system? So, oh, this is, this is super exciting. I think I have to like, I have to like create a system for myself after this because, or at least edit my current one because I'm not, the power requires, it makes it really fascinating that Rome allows you to do all these things like these modular pages. Oof. Okay. And with that, is there anything that you want to see come out of Rome in the future or is it mainly the notifications bit? Otherwise, you're set. Notifications are a huge deal, uh, but as I mentioned before, I'm not really sure how they will mm. um, how they'll help when you have lots of users making lots of small changes to lots of pages. So yeah, that that I can see that happening very easily with a multiplayer room. But they've been thinking about it for longer than I have. So yeah, I, I really do want to see that. Yeah, it's probably to do with tracking each block's version history. And finding a way to, a combination of that one and finding a way to either restore or at least view deleted blocks because that's one of the things that a user on Rome can do. Mm. If you weren't on Rome Graph in quite a while and all of a sudden, you know, the five blocks that you were working on are deleted by somebody else, you Mm want to know what happened, right? Like you want to know why and why all the connections are now lost. Mm -hmm. I I have another, um, yeah, I had this idea I put on the Slack a couple of times, which is, there's an or component, curly bracket, curly bracket, or colon. Yep. Then you can put a list of things and then they come in a dropdown. That's super useful for tags where uh, they have sort of discrete stages. So doing, to do, doing, done or something. When you know they're exclusive and you only want to use one at a time, it's really useful to have a dropdown because then you can just pick which one, which status you want. 
And you don't have to remember what all the other statuses are because they're in that list. Ah, okay. So imagine that you have to do doing done in a drop down in yep. a block. And then you've got lots of blocks with different either to do, doing, or done. If you go and make a query on doing, currently it matches every block because the or component literally has the text of each three, three yeah. of those tags. So it matches yeah. every one of them. If it didn't, if it ignored, if it only used the selected one in the or, then you would have almost the programming you'd almost be able to program things. So you'd be able to, on a block, change the tag from to do to doing, and then all your queries will update automatically because the um, you, you've essentially swapped. So, I mean, it's no different to deleting the tag and typing a new one, but it means you can do that with a drop-down menu. And now you have sort of sets of tags which describe exclusive progressive statuses, for example, mm, and just okay. sw- swap between them really easily. That's another feature I've tried to ask for a few times. Oh, that, that'd be really useful, especially when you can edit that dropdown, because some people might not even consider, like even just even mm. just inclusion of the ability to add a dropdown to a mm. block mm-hmm. and turn that into a template because some people might have SOPs where they use the dropdown for other things as well. And then if that can be searchable via query, oof. The amount of angles yeah, yeah, that you can tackle with this. Oh, okay. That's exciting. Okay. Wow. I have thought about documenting what we've done so far, but I just wasn't really sure if anyone was interested. So if, if people sort of contact me on Twitter or whatever and ask for it, I'd be happy to pull this together. And I honestly thought that you would already have an article detailing all of this down. Um, I, I've, yeah. re- I've messaged a few people who are using Rome for their own startups or for their own team, uh, team-based use cases. So not just not just as a like a shared knowledge graph. Yours is much more intuitive in that you have intended output. It's not just like a gathering of knowledge and you just stick it in the graph, hmm. see what happens, right? But you actually have tasks that you have to do. You have people that have to follow up, etc. You have hmm. so many different angles in terms of trying to achieve something. The resultant output or the collective output of that is a startup you know, which is what Health Rising is doing right mm-hmm. now. That can be applied to many other teams or many other, you know, group cases. So I think I've seen a few people ask questions maybe in the Slack, like, oh, how do you do a proper CRM? Or how do you do a pipeline? Or how do you emulate Asana into Rome? And I, yeah, I, yeah, I, that's kind of what we're trying to do. Yeah, yeah. I feel like sense. you've already done like an all-in-one package for that. So if there's a way for us to see like a visual element to this, that'll be fantastic. Yeah. Uh, other than that, we have this show to give you a primer. And uh, if anyone has any questions, uh, I'm sure Matt uh, will answer. Actually, no, there, there's one question. If you're using Rome for your personal self as well, is there anything that you want to try to create using Rome that is like in your interest? Well, the personal one? Uh, yeah, yeah. I still like reading physical books and I make all my notes in the margins and, and highlights. And then I want them to go into Rome. And so I was looking into lots of optical character recognition automated systems to scan a book or scan your notes and get them in text and and whatever. I couldn't find any that would work, mostly because um, vertical lines that are highlights down the side, it's hard to tell a computer to sort of grab the sentence contained by the line. But then also my handwriting in the notes was just awful. So no one's (laughs) only a human can do that. Um, 
the other, the other thing we do in Health Horizon is a lot of outsourcing. So I, I did experiment with getting a transcriptionist to read my notes. <laughs> so now uh, I just read this book, for example. It's got notes sort of scrolled in the margins like this. Yeah. And uh, I just take a, literally take a photo of every page with a highlight in it and then put it into a Dropbox document. And I have a couple of people on Upwork who then transcribe it manually. And then there's a certain rules they follow. They put it into Dropbox paper, I think. They type it straight into Dropbox paper because I can export that as markdown and then I paste that into Rome. And so then in my private Rome, I can search for a topic and then I just have all my physical notes coming up as well. So it's like you're searching, this book is about creativity. If I search for the word creativity in it, I can see every note I hand wrote in margins of all my books that had the word creativity in it in the unlinked men- uh, unlinked references. Yeah. So I've kind of built a sort of search engine for my handwritten notes for the personal room. And I was thinking about how to make that even more efficient because I think I got it down to roughly 2 or $3 per thousand transcribed words using these outsource people. I know other people have this issue as well. So that's something I'm trying to build in the, for the personal use. Yeah, there, there are a lot of others who, who have had years of physical notes and they want it to be put into Rome just to see what possibilities come on. I've, I've seen that actually mm-hmm. on Rome called Twitter where they, they wish they had like a physical version and then just upload the page and hopefully it will, it will transcribe and it will pull out all the text. But I think that's something <laughs> yeah. way further in the future. <laughs> I, I thought the same thing and I'm sitting there going, oh, this, if only we had AGIs that could automate this process, right? That were smart enough to do this. And it took me so long. And then one day I just realized there are AGIs. They're called people. Like they're everywhere. <laughs> and they would be very happy to type out your notes if you pay them. So rather than paying $0 for an AGI, couldn't you, could you just pay $2 and give it to someone who really needs the money and then they can transcribe it all for you and you get your notes you want. You just have to pay a little bit of money instead of zero money. Uh, I think that that was the kind of <laughs> the breakthrough there. So, um, yeah, we, we have AGI. They're called people. And <laughs> you can just ask them to do stuff and they'll do it if you pay them. It's great. Fantastic. Now, if there's a way to have that implemented in a, into Rome directly, so uh, Rome Research Team, if you... Uh, are considering optical character recognition. Mm. If that's, if that's oh, that, right, OCR, yeah. That, that makes me think of the other thing would be easy, is, is sharing individual pages publicly from a, mm. from a shared one. Because often I'll, I'll write practice stuff in Rome and then have to sort of paste it somewhere else and then share that. But just being able to share individual pages, I'd, I'd, that'd be amazing. Yeah, and I, I've heard there are some issues concerning security or uh, the mm, yeah. possibility that sharing just one page will result in the entire graph being public. Uh, and maybe it's just the nature of the graph in that once you have maybe one link, that one link messes with the logic thinking like, oh, okay, if if they're okay with one page being public, then they're okay with it being public with everything else. So that's mm. uh, that's also, if they can handle that, that would be great as well. Because I, I do that, um, especially through Notion, since Notion can do like individual page share links. Mm, yeah. And it 
it can handle direct copy text from Rome. So that's like a like a little hacky way to share things that I've written in Rome to people without yep. sharing with them my graph. So, okay, cool. If, if we can get the OCR thing, that'll be great because I also write a lot of margins in my books and I forget after a while. Like I can only mm. refer to those notes by going into that context, which means just actually picking up the book again. But I'm already here. I want to search it. Like it'll be great <laughs> if I could search the bookshelf yeah. behind me or downstairs that uh, all the notes that I've written. Well, if you want to get a, if you want to grab one, if you want to try it out and take photos of them, um, take photos of the pages, it takes like five minutes. I could get my um, transcriptionist to give it a go and you can see if it, if it works for you. I'd be interested to see who else wants something like that. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'll, okay, sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll write a few pages in. Oh, that's a to-do for me uh, in the public room graph. <laughs> and uh, on that note, uh, we are coming up on time, but uh, there are a few questions right at the end that I would love to hear uh, your take on it. So, uh, Matt, the first question is, how would you describe Rome to someone who hasn't started using it yet? Oh, well, I've done that many times. Um, oh, please. <laughs> yeah. Well, the last time I did it, I was at the pub and I said, um, I guess I did the, the kind of marketing story thing. I, it was more like, it's, it's a bit too complicated to explain how it works. So I just said to my friend, I've been, I've spent 18, 20 years trying to find a note-taking system that works for me, that works with my brain. And I found it a few months ago. Mm, that's okay. how I just introduce it to to my friends because a lot of them have the same issue. The oh, okay. note taking stuff doesn't. No note taking system has been sufficient up to today, and um, so that's how I usually introduce it. And then I, I will say that it, it's based on a graph, so that you uh, you can just throw ideas in and structure it later, rather than having a structure and putting ideas into it. Ah, okay. Probably don't go any deeper than that when describing it to somebody. So is this on the assumption that that they would know how how a graph and its connections work, like the concepts behind it? No, no. Um, okay. Yeah, it's more the structure aspect of it, the ah, bottom-up okay. structure rather than the top-down structure. Okay, yeah. Because I'm having trouble there as well because at least when I tell some of my friends about Rome and I would say, yeah, it's based on a graph so it can connect all these things they would immediately think of, you know, the usual just X and Y graph, like the most simplistic, right, empty graph, um, something you'd see in math homework in high school or something. And it's not really as useful in terms of trying to create some sort of visual element to ex- your explanation. Uh, so I was just curious, like, how would you handle that? But okay. Yeah, I right. should avoid the word graph, actually. I think that's fine. <laughs> but, but structure emerging from your notes, mm. I think is quite, the, that's quite exciting as well, because... You know, you don't know what you don't know, and and your notes contain more knowledge than they have just individually. When you combine it up, there's more value there, and I think everyone can understand that. Fantastic! And of course, final question: What does Rome mean to you? Uh, uh, well, to me, it's the uh, when I, when I mentioned I'd been looking for the right note taking system for twenty years. That's literally true i do feel what, what it means to me is i feel like this is the way to do it this is the real breakthrough you know when note systems became electronic that kind of solved a bunch of problems but didn't solve all of them it, it introduced new problems and it never felt like 
the the flexibility that digital should give you was realized because people were still putting just notebooks in computers. They were still mm. just digitizing notebooks. And I, I say this is the, the true innovation was finally made in 2019 or whenever it happened when the, uh, I guess, what did happen? A notebook was splintered and there's no such thing as a notebook anymore. It's notes. It's, it's a whole mess of notes that just gets uh, they have relationships between them. And that's how note-taking should be done on a computer. And so that's the genuine innovation. So it means a lot to me that that's been discovered and I can use that. And then you can build that entire startup on just Rome, yeah. which is still <laughs> yeah. blowing my mind. Like I'm still trying to comprehend looking back in my on-the-fly notes. I'm like, oh my goodness. Oh, I have to read through that again. So on that uh, yeah, note- I, I should give you a tour then at some stage. <laughs> that would be an easy way. Yeah, there are also a couple of other people who would be eager to see you do a Rome tour. So if mm. we want to contact you about how you use Rome for your startup or for Health Horizon or pretty much how you interact with your Rome graph or anything that we talked about in this conversation, like, for example, like the Twain or uh, your podcast, where can we find you and how do we contact you? Twitter is the best. Uh, okay. Thanks to that website and um i've got a little bit of rome stuff on there but i'll certainly do more if, if people want it but the twitter handle is matt mcgann uh one one t so m-a-t-m-c-g-a-n-n all right and i will put that in the public rome graph right below so matt thank you so much and i will see you on twitter thanks no Thank you for listening to the show. Make sure to hit subscribe in your favorite podcast listening app. And for a full version of the show notes to this episode, you can check out the public Rome graph. The link to that will be in the description right below. For more updates, comments, feedback, and suggestions, you can reach out to me at RomeFM on Twitter. Keep roaming your thoughts, and I will see you in the next episode. Take care.